Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, your podcast guide through Swedish history. I'm Chris and sitting across from me is my co-host Orsa. Indeed, I'm sitting here ready to get back to the mid-1400s and all the craziness of Swedish politics and not to mention the big question mark around what's going to happen to the Kalmar Union now that King Christopher is dead. Yep, King Chris, my glorious namesake and all-round excellent guy who'd uh, ruled Sweden and the rest of the Kalmar Union since 1441, is now suddenly and unexpectedly, tragically dead. And he left no heirs to the throne of the Scandinavian Kingdom, so what's going to happen now? That's what we're going to be looking at in today's episode, but as first, as always, it's time for the Swedish phrase of the week. Although this one's actually more of uh, just a word rather than a phrase. Yes, it's a neat and handy little word, and that is påteor. And that's something you see a lot if you go to a cafe in Sweden. It might say påteor ingel, uh, in my best skånska, and that means påteor included. And it's one of those phrases, yeah, like I just did, you can try and make it sound super skånska in uh, Orsa's local accent if you want to try. Yeah, because it has both the eo and the r that uh, we kind of pronounce differently from standard Swedish. <laughs> no one says it maybe quite like that. But Apart from your grandmother. <laughs> that's actually very close to the truth. Perotor means a refill of a drink, in most cases coffee. So perotor ingor, perotor included, means that if you buy a cup of coffee, a refill, a second cup, is included. You also hear it used a lot if you're enjoying a traditional Swedish fika or a meal with a friend. Maybe you're at their place. They'll sort of hold up the coffee pot or bottle of whatever you're drinking and just look at you and say, Pöter. And that means they're wondering if you would like a top-up or a refill of what you're drinking. According to Institutet for Språk och Folkminnen, the Institute for Language and Cultural Heritage, a tår, which in modern Swedish means a tear, like when you cry, was also used in older Swedish to mean a splash or a drop of something. So kaffetår would be a drop of coffee. And then adding the prefix pill, which is similar to the English re, as in again, that makes it mean a redrop or a refill. And I have to say, I'm not super familiar with this word myself, uh, like a lot of Swedish people would be, since I don't drink tea or coffee or any hot beverages, and uh, pubs don't usually do free refills of beer. With that linguistic boost of caffeine, we'll quickly give you an addition to Dave's email from two episodes ago about Bishop's Hill, that Swedish colony in North America. This time, Brendan got in touch from Texas to say he still has his family's chest from when they moved to Bishop's Hill as part of that colonist wave way back when. And he also sent us a great picture of the chest, which is such a cool family heirloom to have. It really is. You can still see the date. 1846 on the front of the chest and it has survived very well considering it's a chest that sailed over the Atlantic Ocean nearly 200 years ago. 
For quite a small place, we've now got two connections to the colony from our listeners. So that's really cool to hear. Absolutely. And if you also have a connection to Bishop's Hill, let's try and add to this army of Bishop's Hill uh, listeners, which would be very fun to do. But now this is going to be a relatively long episode, and it's already been about six minutes uh, just doing the Swedish phrase. So we should head right back to 1448 and the town of Jernsherping, because that's where the Swedish council is sitting and wondering where on earth King Chris is and why is he late for their meeting. Whilst they're waiting, they can't even get a pelter of their coffee because coffee hasn't even been introduced to Sweden yet. Oh, true. So they're even more bored and maybe uh, sleepy from a lack of caffeine. But at least they could look out over the lovely island of Visingsö that we visited in the last episode. So everything wasn't all that bad. Eventually, though, news reached them that the king has, as we know, died in Helsingborg on the 5th of January. So that means he won't be turning up to any meetings, presumably, uh, not anytime soon. Even though this situation has the potential of destroying the political stability that Sweden and the rest of the Kalmar Union has enjoyed during Christopher's reign, it seems like initially everyone remained calm. The Swedish council recognized that a new king had to be elected, that they had to discuss things with their union partners down in Denmark, and that whilst they were doing all of that, some sort of interim ruler had to be put in place. And so this is when we get two Riksförstandare put in place to rule Sweden until there's a new monarch. We've come across this term before, and there's been a bit of back and forth regarding what we should translate Riksförstandare to in English, because we've mentioned it a few different times and used different translations. I think in our previous episode, where Karl Knutsen Bunda was Riksförstandare for a period in 1438 before Christopher could be elected king, I think we used the term steward of the realm, or even high steward. And that is a translation you find in some sources, whereas some use the German term Reichsverwässer and or imperial regent. But to make sure that we're consistent going forward and to bring a bit of order and clarity to this, I looked up what translation the Swedish parliament and government uses. Because, and I didn't know this, but this term, Riksförstandare, is still relevant today and it is in the constitution, which was last revised in 1974. So it's quite updated. It is indeed, and I'm actually one of those extremely nerdy people, so I sat down and compared the official English and Swedish versions of the Swedish constitution the other day and checking which words they used in which version. I'm possibly the only person to ever actually do that after they wrote the thing. But Riksförstandare is still a thing nowadays, because Sweden still has a monarchy, and that means there could be a situation where the monarch is unable to rule, either because of illness or death, or stuck in a mine collapse somewhere or something, but there's no heir to the throne to take over. So, for example, if the current king, Carl XVI Gustav, had died in the 1980s when Crown Princess Victoria was still a child, then there would have been a Riksförstandare to take over until the heir became of age, and they would also elect a Vice Riksförstandare. 
or a Visriksvarsland under in Swedish. And that's because even though today's king or queen of Sweden doesn't rule like the medieval ones did, they are still head of state and visiting and greeting foreign presidents and prime ministers and kings and all that kind of stuff. So the position can't just be left vacant or left to a three-year-old child to do. Another example would be if the entire royal family became extinct, and then the Swedish parliament would elect someone to become the Riksförstandera. Perhaps not too likely in modern-day Sweden, but this could be relevant in places like Japan, where the imperial family is actually coming very close to that situation, with only a few potential heirs left around. Yeah, it makes sense, and I should know the constitution of my own country better, I guess. I didn't know that bit about the Riksförstandare until you came and read it out to me. But that also meant that, like you said, you could go to the official translation of the constitution and see what term they used in English. And in the English version of the Swedish constitution, they used the term regent and then deputy regent. And that's what we're just going to use from now on, mainly because it's the official term used in the constitution, but also because it's less cumbersome to say on the podcast than steward of the realm, although that's uh, what a lot of historians and other podcasters do call it, and it does sound much more medieval and fit in with the times, but um, yeah, we, we feel like using regent from now on. And just for completeness sake, in case there is another uh, nerdy person out there who's going to go and read the constitution, you could get even more in detail with this and you could technically also appoint a tilfellig riksförstandera or regent ad interim or uh, a temporary regency. They use the, the Latin phrase regent ad interim in the English version of the constitution and that's more of a short-term regent for if the monarch has surgery under general anaesthetic or is out of the country for a couple of days and doesn't have mobile phone signal or something like that. There is that extra extra term but we're just going to use the term regent. Great. So in early 1448, the Swedish council appoints two regents to rule until they've been able to talk to the Danes and elect a new king, which they decide should be done at a meeting in Stockholm in May. The council at the time is strongly dominated by two noble families, the Uxenstjernas and the Vasas. So it's perhaps not surprising that it's from their ranks that the regents are chosen. Indeed, in January, the council appoints two brothers, Bengt and Niels Jonsson Uxenstjerna, to share the role of regent. We know Niels is the oldest, but we don't know when they were born. But they were likely born in the 1390s, since we know that their dad, Jons Benson Uxenstjerna, died in the late 1390s. So they're around 50 years old or so. They've been on the political scene since the 1420s when they were part of the Engelbrecht Rebellion and they've served on the Council of the Realm since 1435. Since 1439, Bengt has been the lawman of Upland and commander of Ringsterholm Castle. He's also served on this special committee within the council that was set up during Chris's reign to nominate people into various positions in the state and army. In his role as lawman, he's also likely played a part in the development of Chris's Landslag, the national law code that was introduced during his reign. His brother Niels has also held several important positions, including commander of both Stockholm and Nyköpingshus Castle. So they're two senior statesmen that have both been close to the king that's just died. 
And the Uxenfrana family is about to become even more powerful because in February the Archbishop of Uppsala dies and is succeeded by none other than Bengt's son, Jons Bengtsson Uxenfrana. And this is starting to feel like the Bielbo dynasty when Birger's brothers were all bishops of Linchelfing at one point or another. So this means now that the Uxenfranas hold both the highest clerical office in the land and during this absence of a king, the highest secular office as regents. And you know what they say? comes with great power great responsibility yes but also in medieval sweden a great big target on your back because you and your family are now so powerful that the other slightly lesser powerful families start to feel threatened by you and want to get rid of you or at least try and uh, remove some of these roles from your cv that is very true one person who is not happy with the uxenstjärnas having all this power because they've always rivaled his own ambitions of power in sweden is of course our old friend Karl Knutsson Bunde, good old KKB, who has been biding his time out at Viboy Castle in the eastern corner of Finland for most of Christopher's reign. Yeah, he's probably learning Russian and uh, riding bears to work and whatever they do out there. He sees this as the perfect opportunity, though, to put his bear back in the stable and now head back to Sweden to try and reclaim the power that he's lost now that the king has died without heirs. In fact, the timing couldn't have been better because he's actually already started to gather his own army, which is about 800 men strong at this point, to go and kick ex-king now-turned-pirate Eric off of Gotland for once and for all and force him to take up the offer that he's been given to become ruler back down in his native Pomerania. But for now, Karl Kunitzenbunda just decides to head to the meeting in Stockholm instead and throw his own name into the pool of potential new kings. And, well, if he brings his 800-men mini-army with him, then surely that will put some weight behind his candidacy. In a move that some historians have described as a coup... This is exactly what KKB does. He rocks up in Stockholm with his own mini-army and walks into the meeting where the council and the clergy is set to elect a new king. Quite understandably, this brings quite a bit of tension to the proceedings. (laughs) Yeah, that's to say the least, especially since KKB's private army is literally fighting in the street with men loyal to the Uxenfrana family. It also rushes the proceedings along, which, again, I guess having people fighting outside will add a certain stress to any meeting you're trying to have. And that means that the Swedes who are in favour of keeping the union, they haven't really got time to consult with their counterparts down in Denmark. It's now more of a, let's elect someone now before a stone is thrown through the window sort of atmosphere uh, than, oh, let's take our time, let's see what the Danes want, let's get this sorted in an orderly fashion. Uh, And this is, of course, exactly what KKB has hoped for, since he's trying to wring as much power for himself out of this as possible. 
In this tense atmosphere, the Swedish nobility and clergy sit down to discuss their options for this new king. They've heard through the grapevine that the Danes are thinking of Christian of Oldenburg for the role of king, since he's the nephew of Count Adolf of Holstein, Denmark's most powerful feudal lord at this point, and having that closer connection to Holstein might be good for relations down on Denmark's southern border. But the Swedes aren't too keen on that option. Frankly, the whole issue of Schleswig and Holstein and Denmark's southern border isn't really that high up on their list of priorities. Maybe all of Erik's fighting down there and the money that was spent on that, which partly led to the Engelbrecht rebellion, is still relatively fresh on their minds. Speaking of Eric, he's actually another option for King that gets floated around at the meeting. It might seem crazy, since these are some of the same noblemen that kicked him out less than 15 years previously, but the old King does have a large network of contacts that the Swedes thought they could maybe benefit from. But perhaps wisely, that idea is dropped pretty quickly. Yeah, probably for the best. Bingt and Niels get put forward as candidates too, because unsurprisingly, they're already regents, uh, so one of them could just continue as king. But KKB counter-argues that they should then instead elect a new regent, which they obviously don't agree with. Bingt actually suggests that they should elect a child instead. Because Sweden's had so much luck with putting children on the throne so far in history, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, Bingt is perhaps not considering the lessons of history here. In fact, it's more likely that he's hoping to do a sort of Birja Jarl move and rule himself through one of his children, since the child he prefers that the council elect is one of his own sons. Yeah, this is all just a big power play by everyone, isn't it? In the end, it gets to election day, Thursday the 20th of June 1448, in St. Gertrude's Jillestuga in Stockholm. Two knights and two bishops are put in charge to act as election officials. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know who the major candidates were at the end. We just know that the majority voted for, no surprise, KKB. Potentially helped by the fact that he had 800 armed men roaming around outside uh, fighting. Or everyone just really liked him. Uh, we don't know. Yeah, it reminds me of the excellent Tatalus Rankian episode about Emperor Didius Julianus, a disastrous emperor who bought the empire from the Praetorian Guard. And uh, once he's become emperor, he turned up to speak to the Senate and had loads of soldiers with him. But as Cassius Dio, the historian, said, who was actually in the room at the time, he said, I am here alone, is what Didius Julianus said though he had actually surrounded the entire Senate House outside with heavily armed troops and had a large number of soldiers in the chamber itself. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like perhaps uh, what KKB said as well. I, I can imagine that. But yes, this election is as decisive as it is probably corrupt. Kalknots on Bunde, the ruthless nobleman that's been a major player on the Swedish political stage since the Engelbrecht rebellion, he is now King Karl. He's sometimes known by the regnal number eight, making him Karl VIII. But as we know, the Swedish regnal number is a big mess that has no basis in reality anyway. 
In fact, he himself sometimes styles him as Carl II. Uh, his election is confirmed, as per tradition, at Morastena on the 28th of June, and he's crowned in Uppsala Cathedral on the 29th of June, so it's a busy couple of weeks for him. And Swedes still, to this day, call him Karl Knutsson Bunda, though. None of this uh, numbering nonsense, thankfully. So uh, that's easier, just KKB. Yeah, King KKB. So he could now be abbreviated to KKKB. But that sounds a bit dodgy, so we're just going to call him KKB. He is here, and he is king, at least of Sweden. Yeah, I think it's wise to not call him KKKB. <laughs> that would be very weird. But now, yeah, even though the Kalmar Union is still in place, at least on paper, we've now got this situation where there are separate kings in the two different kingdoms because Sweden has just gone on and elected KKB. Down in Denmark, the Danish council and the nobility and the clergy are also struggling to agree on who they want on the throne, but they can agree on one thing, and that's they definitely don't want. KKB. Since they consider Denmark to be the strongest part of the Union, they believe a Dane, or at least someone that Denmark has chosen, should be on the throne of all the kingdoms in the Union, and they really don't care at all for this solo power grab that KKB has gone ahead with up in Sweden. Actually, at this point, no one, neither in Sweden nor in Denmark, ever says that they want to break up the union. They just want to make sure that their side has the most power. In reality, the Kalmar Union was now over 50 years old, and even though it had had its fair share of problems, for a lot of people, it was a good thing. When there was peace, cross-border trade flew more smoothly thanks to the Union, which was of great benefit to both peasants and merchants, who enjoyed a larger trading area and easier access between inland areas and ports out on the coast. Under King Chris, the situation had been pretty nice for everyone involved. The nobility could get on with managing their estates, and for them cross-border marriages had become increasingly popular, especially along the Swedish-Danish border. This was by now so common that an interlinked Nordic aristocracy was emerging. Making it clear that they didn't agree to KKB as a joint union king, Denmark eventually went ahead and elected Christian of Oldenburg as king, who from now on will be known as Christian I. In some historical sources, he's portrayed as not being the most intelligent of men, with the Pope at the time calling him a beautiful animal, likely because he couldn't speak Latin. But he did have one thing going for him, and that was that he was single. Yes, and that was no small benefit to the Danes and also the Swedes. And that's because old King Christopher's widow, Queen Dorothea, was due to receive a very large widow's pension, including a lot of land in both Sweden and Denmark. The Danish council was not keen at all to pay out this pension, and so with the new king being single, they simply made him take over the old king's wife. And because that made Dorothea no longer a widow, but instead someone else's wife, they didn't have to pay out her widow's pension. So, yay, good for the council. <laughs> Very good for the council, but we have no idea how Dorothea felt about this, or, or Christian for that matter. Can't imagine it being um, the best solution personally. 
But back to the dispute. The Kalmar Union now has two different kings, Christian in Denmark and KKB in Sweden. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten about Norway, we'll get to that in a second. But having two different kings in the Union will, of course, spell trouble. And the first thing that happens is that the two clash over Gotland. Top of KKB's to-do list now that he's king is to sort out this situation on Gotland. Remember, he was already ready to do it before he even tried to become the king. And that's because ex-king Eric is still holding out on the island and continuing to wreak havoc on the Baltic Sea with his pirating. It's time to once and for all go and push him off the island and make sure he accepts that offer to go down and become Duke of Pomerania now that his nephew is dead and his days of being king in Sweden long gone. On the 29th of July, a Swedish fleet lands on Gotland. Erik puts up a fight, but the 2,000 Swedish soldiers the fleet brings over swiftly capture the Gotlandic countryside and lay siege on Visby, both from land and sea. KKB himself is at Boyholm Castle on the neighbouring island of Öland, overseeing the whole thing, albeit from a distance. The siege lasts for months without much actually happening. Eric is actually engaging in some secret negotiations with King Christian, and the Danes try and get himself out of this dodgy situation, both literally and figuratively, but there isn't enough time for them to get there despite the siege lasting a while, because on the 4th of December, the Swedish forces decide to make a bold move. By now, one of the Swedish commanders had left the island with some of his forces and a whole bunch of knights, which might have lured Eric and the defenders of Visby to think that the Swedes were packing up for winter and for good, and that might have made them lower their defences somewhat. At this point, the remaining Swedish commander decides to take the rest of the forces that remain and charge on the Visby town wall. Supposedly shouting, capture Visby or die as their battle cry, the Swedish forces manage to climb over the wall and take the town, which unfortunately is pretty much all we know, as that sounds like an epic battle. <laughs> Erik hastily retreats to the nearby Visboy Castle, and the Swedes begin to starve him out. It doesn't take too long, since according to the Carl Chronicle, he lacks both beer and bread. And we all know you can't go on if you don't have bread or beer, so Eric agrees to begin negotiations with the Swedes pretty much right away. And by the 22nd of December, they conclude that Eric will once and for all hand over Gotland to Sweden, and in return he'll get use of Borholm Castle on Erland and get a nice handy cash payment. Yeah, the Swedes are essentially trying to buy him off and just get rid of him once and for all. But there is an essential element of this whole thing that will soon make it about more than just Sweden and Erik, and that is the fact that KKB and Sweden are doing all this uh, to take back Gotland for themselves, not for the Kalmar Union. They make it very clear that Gotland will become a Swedish territory. The Danes think that this is, well, not fair, to put it simply. Not only is Gotland of strategic importance because of its location in the Baltic Sea, King Christian also doesn't want to see KKB get any stronger. Once Christian ascended the Danish throne in September of 1448, he made it clear that he wanted to get the Swedish crown too and re-establish the Kalmar Union under one single ruler. 
himself. So he starts sending threatening letters to the Swedish council. And in response to that, KKB begins enhancing the protection along Sweden's southern border by building new fortresses along the border to Halland and enhancing existing ones like Rumlaboy in Jönköping. Yeah, this is a definite escalation of tensions here. And in April 1449, before Eric has actually finished packing his bags and left Gotland, a Danish fleet arrives and manages to resupply him at Viesboy Castle. So this is a big surprise. And at the same time, the commander of the Danish fleet, a man called Olaf Axelsson Tot, takes over command of the castle and claims the island for Denmark. So this makes Eric's agreement with the Swedes from the previous December null and void. And yeah, they just come in to try and take it. Yeah, Erik and the Danes have sneakily cheated KKB and the Swedes here at the last minute. We don't know quite what Erik's thinking was here. We haven't found any mentions that the Danes gave or promised him anything in return. Maybe he just wanted to suck it to the Swedes for the pure enjoyment of it. But this isn't over yet. In July, King Christian himself arrives with 150 ships and 6,000 men. That makes the Swedes retreat to Visby with the Danes hot on their heels. In the confused battle that follows, 400 Swedish soldiers lose their lives and the Danes capture the town. The remaining Swedes soon begin negotiating their surrender. And on the 31st of July, an agreement is reached and the remaining Swedes are allowed to leave the island. But this means Gotland is now in Danish hands. What an amazing turn of events there. For a while it looked like Sweden had it all sorted out and then the Danes just came and took it right under their noses. And there's now a state of war existing between the two union buddies. In fact, it's not just on Gotland that they're fighting. In the spring of 1449, before Christian attacks Gotland, a Danish force has attacked into Finveden, an area in western Småland close to the Danish border. But an outbreak of disease within the force and disagreement on how to carry out the attack makes them retreat back to Denmark pretty swiftly. But what has happened to ex-King Eric in all of this, you might be wondering? Well, as the Swedes and Danes were battling it out over Gotland, he did finally give up his ambition to get the crown of the Kalmar Union back, and so he quit his pirate day job and head back to his ancestral lands of Pomerania, finally, after promising to do it so many years before. And sticking around whilst the island was burning around him probably wasn't a good idea, so you can see why he decided to leave. And it's in Pomerania where Eric will live out the rest of his life as the reigning duke there, and will eventually die in 1459 after nearly 15 years of calm ruling down in Pomerania where he kept his nose clean and didn't really get involved with anything else going back on in the Kalmar Union, so he did keep to his promise eventually. When he does die, he's buried in the dukedom's capital, Rungewald, or Darlevo, as the town is called today, as it's a Polish town. And so that is now Eric out of our story. He's been with us for such a long time, since episode 66. So that's 21 episodes that he has featured in, in one way or another. That might be the longest that any person, definitely any ruler of Sweden, has featured in the podcast so far. 
Yeah, you're right. And as things stand right now, in the summer of 2023, he's the fifth longest reigning monarch in Swedish history, with a reign that, when you look back at it all, lasted for 38 years and 24 days. But then he obviously featured in our story long after he was kicked off the throne, so he's really been a blockbuster character, at least in uh, length of appearance. But back to Christian and KKB and the ongoing conflict, because it's not just Gotland that becomes a theatre of war between Denmark and Sweden as we now enter into the 1450s. Remember how we said earlier that we haven't forgotten that there's a third kingdom in the Kalmar Union? So what exactly is going on with Norway? Well, Norway is torn, almost literally, between Denmark with King Christian and Sweden with KKB. Because, as you can imagine, both of these men argue they should be king over Norway too, as part of uh, being, if not the king of Kalmar Union, then a king in the Kalmar Union. Amongst the noblemen, high-ranking clergy, and other influential figures in Norway, there were two factions – One was led by the Archbishop in Trondheim, who campaigned to have KKB as King of Norway. Well, actually, they would have preferred to return to an old Norwegian king from back in the day when Norway had its own royal dynasty that wasn't tied to the other Scandinavian kingdoms, but failing that because that was pretty unrealistic, they would prefer KKB, because they thought he was in a weaker position than Christian, and consequently Norway would then have more autonomy and space to do their own thing if he was king of the Kalmar Union, compared to if they were tied down by Christian and Denmark. The other faction, which mainly consisted of a lot of noblemen who held local power around Norway, they favoured Christian. Most of these noblemen were in fact Danish, or at least of Danish descent. Because remember, unlike in Sweden, where both during the last part of Erik's reign and throughout Christopher's reign, the Swedish council had been successful in their insistence on having Swedes in local power as bailiffs and commander of castles and counties, Norway had essentially been ruled locally by Danes for the last couple of decades. So this is a strong faction in the Norwegian society. In March of 1449, a delegation from that Norwegian faction head to Denmark to negotiate with King Christian with the aim of offering him the Norwegian crown. Pretty much simultaneously, another delegation head to Sweden to do the same thing with KKB, and surprise, surprise, they both want to be king of Norway. Christian wins the race and arrives in Norway around midsummer and is elected king at a meeting in Marstrand. Which, in a funny turn of events, because the borders have shifted around so many times over the centuries here in Scandinavia, Marstrand is actually in Sweden these days. Yep, you're right. And so a king of Denmark was elected king of Norway in what's now Sweden. So that's pretty much a perfect illustration of Scandinavian history. Happy with his election, Christian heads home to Denmark. But his celebration is a bit premature, because that same summer, KKB is also elected king of Norway, this time at Hammar, which was then, and still is, Norway. So, two different factions have elected two different people as king 
of the same country. And KKB goes even further. After having had his election approved by two regional things during the fall, he marched to Trondheim, where in November he is crowned king in Nidarius Cathedral by the archbishop. Not until after that does he head back to Sweden. So he seems a little bit more official now he's been doing this sort of thing. And the two kings are aware that they've both been elected kings and that the situation to go on like this would be untenable in the long term. Because Christian hasn't had a coronation, he's just been elected, KKB thinks he's slightly more king than Christian though. But at the same time, he is aware that many of the commanders of the Norwegian fortresses and other representatives of local power were not present at that coronation, so he can't trust their loyalty. Still, for a few months in the autumn of 1449, KKB and Christian just go ahead and say that they're king of Norway. If I say it enough times, maybe it's true sort of thing. Around Christmas, KKB finds out that the commander of Arkelhus, the fortress in Oslo and one, if not the most important fortresses in Norway, well, he is issuing orders on behalf of Christian. Taking this as a sign that things cannot continue the way they are, KKB gathers an army, marches to Oslo, and puts the town under siege. We don't know how this siege and potential battle play out, but in the end, forces loyal to Christian must have come out on top, because a ceasefire is put in place and the two sides agree to hold a meeting in Halmstad in May the following year. The meeting goes ahead on the 1st of May, when 12 representatives from each side sit down to discuss a diplomatic solution and avoid more fighting. And it's not just the issue of who should rule over Norway, but also what should be done about the Kalmar Union in general that gets discussed. Most of the representatives gathered in Halmstad supported and wanted to preserve the Union for all the reasons we mentioned previously, but also realised that right now, KKB and Christian were both too strong on their respective thrones that neither could be put aside in favour of the other that easy. So instead they agreed that when either of the two kings die, a new meeting should be held with the intention of appointing the surviving king as king of the country with the vacant throne. If that didn't work, a regent would be elected and serve until both kings were dead and a brand new king would be elected to all three thrones. There we go. All things considered, that's a pretty neat solution for now. But what about Norway? Yeah, because Norway, despite KKB's coronation, still needs a king to be confirmed for the present and not have both of them trying to claim it. Even though KKB had been elected by one group and been confirmed by a few regional things and even beat Christian to a coronation, there was no denying that Christian held the more widespread support and crucially had the most support from people in local power with the counties and castles. In the end, Sweden had to yield and KKB had to renounce the Norwegian throne as they didn't want another expensive war to be fought over something they didn't really have properly secured in the first place. And so after the meeting in Halmstad, Christian sailed straight to Norway and was crowned king in August. 
Fortunately, in terms of avoiding awkwardness in that ceremony, the Archbishop who had supported and crowned KKB had died a few days before the new ceremony. So it was a new Archbishop that crowned Christian. I mean, that doesn't sound suspicious whatsoever. Uh, No, not at all. Even though there's no mention of even suspicion of foul play, he just happened to die and there was a new Archbishop. Looking at the map so far, Denmark has come out on top both when it came to Gotland and Norway. This must have annoyed KKB. Is he just going to sit quietly and be content with being king of Sweden and wait for the succession and the future of the Kalmar Union to play out according to what was agreed in Halmstad? Um, no, he's not, because he wouldn't be the ruthless, power-hungry man we know him to be if he did do that. But frankly, in Christian, he's met his match. This time, though, the Danes aren't confident that KKB was just going to sit back and accept Christian being crowned king of Norway and being given all the power there, so they act first, and they're not pulling any punches. Now they've got hold of Gotland, this means they're able to strike Sweden with a two-front attack, which is exactly what they end up doing. During 1451, one Danish force hits Sweden from the west, going through Bohuslän into Värmland. At the same time, Gotland sends a Danish fleet to attack the Swedish east coast. They don't manage to take any significant ground, but they conduct brutal raids up and down the length of the coast. Then, by early 1452, KKB decides it's time to counterattack. He gathers the council on the 6th of January, and together they decide that in order to raise manpower, they'll issue a decree that says that seven farmers, or seven merchants, or basemen, or noblemen, really any group in Swedish society, must join together and fund and equip an eighth man to serve in the king's army. Through this somewhat novel, for Sweden at least, method of rallying an armed force, KKB actually manages to gather quite a big force. He gathers his new army in Makarud in southern Sweden, and in early February they launch their attack into Danish Skåne. KKB intends to use the harsh winter weather that has made lakes, swamps and rivers freeze over to his advantage, since they make for useful transportation routes. He wants to attack Skorna in particular, so the Danes can't use this as a platform to launch further attacks into Sweden later on, since along with Halland and Blekinger, it's the Danish county closest to the Swedish border. We actually know a fair bit about what KKB's army looked like when they began their attack, or we know a lot through the Karl Chronicle, which as we said before is heavily biased in favour of the king, but according to it, KKB has structured his army in particular ways. First, he sends out scout patrols on skis to gather intelligence. This is actually the first time I've seen a mention of using soldiers on skis when I've researched a battle in Nordic history, but it might very well have been used previously, just that I've missed it. What I do know is that using soldiers on skis has been a successful tactic of Nordic armies several times since then. Yeah, never underestimate what the Nordic people can do on skis. I mean, after all, one of the most popular sports here is Huidhutta, or biathlon, which is literally shooting and skiing. So, uh, yeah, they're training for this even when they're having fun. 
And in the book we read about this battle, our ever-reliable Swedish medieval wars, or Medeltidens Svenska Krieg, there's an excellent picture of the multi-barreled Italian cannon of the type that KKB had with his forces as artillery on this expedition. And although as the attack was done during winter, KKB's artillery was drawn on sledges instead of on wheels. And this picture has uh, two dragon or wolf heads and has six cannons mounted on a wooden platform and it looks great and is just another example of how you know previously we saw cannons being floated on barges as they were so big and heavy but now they're becoming ever more portable and can just be dragged around on some sledges so we're really into the era of the cannon now yeah and after his skiing scouting troops have been sent in the king comes along himself with 150 knights on horseback marching under the banner of saint joran or saint george as he's known in english that's then followed by more banners with images of the scandinavian saints eric and olof then 20 artilleries pulled on sledges like chris mentioned And that's before we even get to the main force, which consisted of 23 rows of knights and their seconds, of ordinary soldiers and mercenary forces marching under a banner of the Virgin Mary and the three crowned crowds of arms. Finally, there's a rear force of 200 knights and their seconds, or assistants. Again, we get all of this from the Carl Chronicle, so the figures are probably exaggerated, but it claims there are between 60 to 80,000 men in that force that attacked Scorner that winter, which, yeah, sounds like a big exaggeration. Even if that is exaggerated, and it's just a fraction of that, it's still a lot, especially considering that the population of Sweden, or Denmark for that matter, wasn't anywhere near as large as it is today, and there isn't such a thing as a standing professional army yet. The Swedish force wastes no time making their presence known. Their first main stop is the town of Helsingborg, which is burnt to the ground. Here, though, a lack of ice covering the Ursund Strait prevents the Swedes from just walking over to Helsingborg's sister town of Helsingør in what is now Denmark, and then south on to Copenhagen, so instead they have to head to Landskrona in Skåne. Here, the townspeople surrender instantly, likely wishing to avoid suffering the same fate as Helsingborg. From Landskrona, KKB sends a message to the Danish archbishop down in Lund, inviting him and the other noblemen of Skorna to accept him as king. When he doesn't get a reply, well, then he goes ahead and burns down Landskrona anyway, and the nearby village of Borreby too, just for good measures, and then KKB heads south to Lund. Here, the archbishop is now nervous and tries to invite KKB to discuss a truce, to which KKB says no and instead burns the town down. Only the cathedral and fortified estate Lundagord survives the flame. So KKB is truly on a rampage. KKB then intends to head onwards to Malmö, but he gets intelligence that the people of Skorna have gathered together an impromptu army consisting of both peasants and noblemen, and they're gathered in the village of Dalby, just a few miles from Lund, and intend to fight back. Undeterred though, KKB goes to Dalby to meet this resistance, and a fierce battle takes place there. The force from Skorna puts up a brave fight, but they end up falling to a crushing defeat against KKB's much bigger army. 
Still, their resistance means that KKB has to give up his plan to take Malmö and instead heads north. Other villages are burnt down and some people are forced to pay a thousand marks to save their places from being looted. After three weeks of burning and fighting, KKB and his forces leave Skåne with a huge wake of destruction behind them. It's quite interesting because you can really see his intention of just tearing the place up here. He, he wants to make sure the Danes can't use Skorna as this base for future operations, but also not able to get supplies from here if they attack and do what they did. But this means the local population had to pay a high price. I think sometimes we get a bit numb to this because it took place so long ago, but you just have to imagine this huge army rolling in and essentially burning everything they see. It's really... Uh, uh, not fun for those people involved. Yeah, and I don't know if like I can think about it more because this is happening in the place where I grew up, but they're really showing no mercy, no respect for what we today call a civilian population. They just burn entire towns and villages down. And yeah, this is far back in history, so we sometimes don't think about it in the way that we think about more recent events, but it's truly a horrifying uh, wars and battles that we see here. Once it's back home, KKB sends new forces to repeat the same maneuver in Blekinge and Halland, and also to burn down Lödöse. Again, even though it's in Sweden, albeit right on the border, he does this, or he wants to do this, for the same reason as his rampage in Skåne. It's to prevent the Danes from using these areas in a potential attack on Sweden. This move is successful in Blekinge, but in Halland, the noblemen that KKB has put in charge of the force, well, they're actually personally in favour of the Kalmar Union and have quite friendly personal relations with the Danes in Halland, and, well, frankly, they don't want to burn down their next-door neighbour's stuff. The fact that Halland isn't ransacked the same way as Blekinger and Skorna are means that Christian can use this as a route for when he counterattacks later the same year, showing why it was wise for KKB to try and burn it down. Unlike KKB, who had recruited from all across Swedish society for his army, Christian's force mainly consists of German counts and knights who have been paid for. They fight professionally. Kinderholm Fortress is the first Swedish defence the Danes encounter, and here they strike a deal with the commander, saying that if the fortress isn't relieved by Swedish forces within five days, then they should surrender. And this is exactly what happens. The same thing is agreed with Elsboy Castle, which also surrenders. And this all means that Christian can head to Lerdosa, that key position in the west of Sweden, and set up their camp there. At the same time as Christian is attacking from the west, the Danish forces from Gotland once again attack in the east. This time they've got 46 ships and they're heading straight for Stockholm. This forces KKB to set off and try and relieve Stockholm, where the townspeople are starting to put up strong resistance against the Danes. But in fact, before KKB could even get to Stockholm, the Danish fleet just turn around and retreat, and on their way back they burn the village of Vestavik on the east coast, but then suffer a defeat when they try to attack the Orland Islands and finally have to return home. 
As all this is going on, KKB is facing increasing resistance from within his own ranks, not least from the bishops of Sweden, who themselves have substantial armed forces at their disposal. But more on that in a bit. What Christian wants to do is exploit this weakening of KKB's fighting ability that the resistance and other domestic troubles cause and hit him hard to get this war over with once and for all. So he leaves his base at Lördöse and heads west into Västergötland. Initially he's successful, the main defense he encounters, they either surrender or are actually commanded by Swedish noblemen who personally are in favor of the Kalmar Union and can be made to agree with Christian. However, Christian has two significant problems. One, he's doing his fighting on enemy ground, which means he has issues supplying his troops. Whilst KKB and the Swedes are at home, so to say, they can live off their own land and the population want to support them, Christian has to either take supplies from the locals or have them brought in from Denmark. And this ties into his second problem, which is that his forces are constantly being attacked by Swedish peasants, who are fighting them and, in particular, attacking their supply lines using guerrilla-style tactics. This in turn means that Christian has to divert part of his expensive and professional troops to guard the supply lines. At the same time, the people of Östergötland decide to not wait for KKB's order, but instead fight for themselves against the Danes, utilizing the difficult terrain of the Hulaveden forest. Here the Danes suffer a crushing defeat with several killed and important Danish commanders captured. It's an impressive victory from an improvised attack undertaken by local people and not even KKB's main army. When Christian hears of this defeat in Östergötland, he immediately wants revenge, but he can't seem to rally his troops behind him. Supplies are low, and the German knights and soldiers that his army largely consists of, well, they have no personal stake in the game, so they just now want to get paid and take the money they're owed and go home. And to make matters worse, there's also an outbreak of dysentery in the Danish ranks, which is not brilliant. In the end, the Danish forces retreat into Halland and KKB sends his mask toward Bunde to recapture what the Danes took in Västergötland, including Lördöse. The mask is successful in doing so. As a thanks, KKB makes him commander of the entire county. Maybe this makes Tord Bunda overconfident, though, because he's gotten back what the Danes took. He therefore goes and launches a surprise attack on Norwegian territory. This provokes the Norwegians to counterattack themselves, expecting an easy victory. But to their surprise, Tord Bunda and his forces hit back even harder and go as far as occupying Trondheim. We don't know many details of this venture into Norway, if it was sanctioned by KKB or just something that Bunde did on his own. It doesn't lead to any real changes in the end, although it could be that Jämtland and Härjedalen counties were periodically ruled by Sweden during this period. Overall, it isn't too major a development in the story. But it's interesting for other reasons, which we will return to next time in a mini-segue in our timeline. What is major, though, is the fact that after a lot of disastrous fighting in both Swedish and Danish lands that's sometimes hard to follow... 
the two countries agree to a ceasefire early the next year, which is then prolonged at a meeting in Stockholm in May and set to last until the 25th of May in 1455. Both sides respect the ceasefire, and the following two years see no renewed fighting. But pretty much as soon as the calendar flips over to the 25th of May 1455, the Danes attack. This time, the Danes have developed a strategy of hitting Sweden from three sides, not just the previous two. So one Danish force sails to Ilvsborg, another heads to Lördöse, and a third attacks from the south into Småland. Is once again masked toward Bunda, who's in charge of the Swedish defences, and he manages to push the Danes back rather successfully, although once again he gets a bit carried away and actually enters into Norway too. It's this time it's more likely that it was sanctioned by KKB though, because in the winter of 1455, Tord establishes a Swedish fortress on Norwegian territory that gets the name Karl's Boy, after Karl Knutsen Bunda. It's perhaps not surprising that Tord names the castle after KKB and the king leaves so much of the military decisions to him because the two are actually cousins, hence their shared surname of Bunda. However, what might have been surprising, not least to Tord himself, is that he's actually murdered the next year by a Danish commander at Karlsborg. Sadly, we couldn't find any details of how this happened, but it didn't seem to be in battle. So maybe the Danish commander managed to sneak up on him and kill him, or they were meeting for a sort of uh, peace discussions or something like that. We don't really know. But yeah, he's murdered just the year later. Yeah, we don't know if that came as a surprise or not. I mean, he maybe wasn't expecting to be murdered but like chris said unfortunately we don't know any details about how it happened we just know that the death of tord bunde meant that kkb lost one of his most loyal and trusted men in fact by 1456 things are looking quite bleak for both sides in this conflict both the swedish and the danish forces are worn down from years of fighting and when a Danish force attacks Erland again, they initially fail to take Boyholm Castle. They're about to give up when Christian arrives in person with reinforcements. The commander of Boyholm Castle tells them that unless KKB comes to Erland himself to take up the fight, he will surrender the castle to the Danes by the 10th of October. In a manner that's very unlike what we've seen of him previously, KKB is quite passive and lets Erland fall to the Danes. So there's so much stuff going on here. It's a proper all-out war. By early next year, so this is now 1457, KKB has got his mojo back and he's marching with a full army down to Kalmar to take Erland back. But before he gets that far, news reaches him that, well, a full-blown rebellion against him and his rulers just begun in Sweden. In my head, I like to imagine that he's just lacing up his boots, getting ready to start marching for the day, when someone comes up and whispers in his ear, uh, actually, your majesty, before you get going, there's been a bit of a new development. What's that? Well, basically, the whole country, or at least anyone who's got any influence over anything, they're now rebelling against you. 
Well, we don't know if that's how he's told, but that's pretty much what happens. KKB has always had his opponents, or even enemies, in the ranks of the Swedish nobility, and now with the years of war with the Danes and the increased taxes that have been put in place to pay for it, discontent is now boiling over. To make matters worse, there's been a series of bad harvests, which might add to people's sense of frustration. The revolt that breaks out in early 1457 is led by none other than the Archbishop, Jöns Bengtsson Oxenstierna, and as you remember, he's from the powerful Oxenstierna family that's always been one of KKB's main rivals. The Archbishop gathers a group of pro-union noblemen that wants to get rid of KKB. And it's said that the Archbishop strode up to the altar in Uppsala Cathedral and took off his mitra, that fancy hat that bishops wear, and declared that he would not wear it again until Sweden was once again ruled according to its old laws. And then he put on a harness, picked up his sword, walked out the church and pinned a note on the church door that said he'd renounced his oath to the king and gathered a personal force to lead a rebellion. The rebel force gathers in Vesteros and from there they head south. And uh, that's a pretty bold statement by the Archbishop just closing the door and leaving a note saying, off to kill the king, BRB. (laughs) From bishop to rebel there in one bold move, it seems. Uh, It's just amazing to think how different things were back then, especially in the role that the church and particularly the, the bishops played in politics and in war. An archbishop that takes off his mitra and puts on his harness like he's one part Pope Francis, one part Che Guevara. It's not just the Archbishop that's ready to fight, though, because this rebellion is spreading quickly, and KKB is, of course, furious. He had 1,400 men with him ready to attack the Danes, but instead turns around and instead heads north to Strangness, where he sets up camp. When we get to the 8th of February, KKB's scouts are looking for the enemy but can't spot anything. But they are still there because the Archbishop's forces have managed to sneak up on the camp and by midnight they attack, taking almost all of KKB's force entirely by surprise. KKB and a small force of around 30 men around him take up the fight. The king has a horse shot out from underneath him and is wounded himself before he manages to flee towards Stockholm. In an attempt to slow his enemy down, he applies a scorched earth tactic and burns the land as he goes. He clearly likes burning things, it seems. When he gets to Stockholm, the townspeople there swear loyalty to him and prepare to close the town gates to anyone chasing him. The rebel force gets to Stockholm by the 13th of February, and while KKB tries to launch an unsuccessful attack against them, he seems to realise the hopelessness of his situation pretty quickly. He likely also doesn't quite trust the loyalty of the people around him in Stockholm, or, you know, anyone in Sweden, really. And so in the dead of night, between the 23rd and 24th of February, he loads up a ship with all the gold he's able to find in the town, and along with his family and some closest allies that few he has left, sets out onto the Baltic Sea. He's invited to the Hansa town of Danzig, where he arrives a few days later. It could be that the people who rule Danzig are just incredibly generous and hospitable, 
Or it could be that they're really interested in all that gold that KKB is bringing with them since they need to fund their own ongoing war against the Teutonic Order. We don't know, but maybe suspect the latter. What we do know is that the townspeople of Stockholm then gladly opened the town gates to the archbishop and his rebel force the very next day. Some soldiers loyal to KKB at the castle hold out for a bit longer, but after a few weeks they surrender as well. The last place to surrender is actually V-Boy Castle out east, where KKB used to live, but eventually even the commander there gives up. So we began this episode with Sweden suddenly having no king, and we end it with there being no king too. But in the process, there's been KKB in charge, who's also trying to be king of Norway, as well as King Christian, and all this quite confusing fighting going on backwards and forwards. And it's now ended with KKB in a sort of semi-imposed exile in Danzig, and the future of the Kalmar Union is once again to be decided. But of course... Christian is very much ready to just step in and take Sweden now. Yeah, and this has been quite a long episode, so we'll wrap up here and continue next time. All that remains now is to say thank you for listening, we hope you've enjoyed the episode, and don't forget to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook and X, or Twitter, as I guess everyone still calls it. And if you do want to get in touch, you can email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. If you like what we do, you might want to leave a review or a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on, and that's greatly appreciated, uh, mainly sort of Audible, Spotify, iTunes. Yeah, if you get a chance, no big deal. We're back with more political chaos in 15th century Sweden in two weeks' time. Until then, take care. Hey, Dor. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>